Well, Branch, happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. It's, you know, Easter time is a great time to think about our lives and think about how we're living our lives and even to think about the afterlife. And in fact, one of the research projects I've been doing in the last week in preparation for today has been to kind of look at concepts of the afterlife and, and examine different ideas about what that, what that may be. In fact, one of the interesting places I stepped into was a conversation on what's called near-death experiences. And, you know, there's a lot of information out there, fascinatingly, about the thousands of different people and the thousands of different um, experiences that people have had all over the planet and all over the locations. What's interesting and fascinating about near-death experiences is they're all fairly uniform depending on where they come from, but also there is some interesting evidence that points to the fact that, you know what, there is an afterlife, that you and I are going to exist beyond our bodies. And um, one of those interesting pieces, I'll give you one of them, uh, was from a lady named Vicki. And as you read her encounter, it was pretty fascinating. She was born blind, and she had lived 22 years of her life without ever seeing any shadows or visual images. In fact, she says when she would dream, she would actually have no visual images at all because she had nothing to reference. Um, she would hear sounds, she would feel things, she would smell smells, and but she would never see anything in her dreams. And yet at the age of 22, she wound up in, an, in a massive car accident and nearly died. During the time in which she was out, she came uh, back uh, from that experience and she started to tell people about this sudden experience she had while she was in this near-death state. And as she was talking about it, she referenced all the visual things that she had seen and she had seen the, the, uh, the office, the doctor's room. She had seen this body laying on this table, and she saw this ring, and she could identify the ring was hers because she could tell the pattern of it. She had felt it so many times on her finger for all the years she had, she had worn it. She then talked about how she had gone up out of the room, and she described trees, and she described birds, and she described all these things visually, though she has never seen any of it before in her life. Other instances of stories of these interesting events was of a young man who woke up and actually started talking about the procedures of, how, of what happened during his surgery and actually told the doctors, you know, you need to use better language when you're talking, at which the doctor felt shamed and said, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, and another one was when a nurse woke this young patient up, and this patient said, I don't understand, Tell, tells the story to the nurse and states, you know, there's a red shoe on the roof of the third floor. Now, the nurse is like, yeah, right, whatever, kid, that's cute. But out of her curiosity, she went up there and literally did find a red shoe on that third floor sitting just as he described with the shoelaces lying just in the way. And these are only a few anecdotal evidences of thousands of evidences that have been laid up for people having experiences outside of their bodies as they approach death. To me, this is just one of those things that wakes us to the reality that the way that we live life it's going to affect the way that we have an afterlife because there is an afterlife. And we need to do is we need to step up and we need to stop thinking just about, as we do as Americans, only this life and how am I doing at work and how am I doing and how much can I get and all these kind of things. We, we need to pause for a minute and consider the afterlife and consider the issue seriously for a minute. It's not something that's coming one day way down the road. It's something that could be around the corner now. And it's something we should think about because how do you know you're going to have a good afterlife? I mean, the question really is, yeah, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? Now, if you actually write that in, into Google, you type in, how do I go to heaven? You're going to wind up with something around 690,000 sites that are going to try to answer your question. 
they do not have enough time to go through those. In fact, 15,000 videos are dedicated just to that question alone, how do I go to heaven? Along with all the other religions of the world, giving you their pathways and giving you their answers and giving you these evidences, it can be overwhelming. And I believe as Americans, what has happened is we've gotten to the place where we simply just say, hey, you know what? There's so much information. It's so confusing. You do you. Just be sincere about what your religion is because, you know, pretty much everything goes to the same place anyway. All the pathways are going to wind up in heaven. And yet I think something inside of us nags us and asks, do they really? Am I really ready? Are they really going to go in the same direction? Because if you really stop and think about it, not all religions even claim they go to, the, to lead to the same place. Actually, the people who teach and preach and believe in their religion would say that, no, 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 you don't understand. We don't, we don't believe that the Christians have the answer if you're Muslim, or the Hindus believe that everybody has the answer. They actually think they have the right pathway, and everybody stands in their position claiming they do indeed have the right pathway. In fact, they, I would describe it this way. If you understand what we're discussing, you'll understand that really it's sort of like these various vehicles. A plane is designed to get you across a certain path, namely a sky path. You know, when you come to a car, it's designed to get you across a street, a road, right? That's a, an earth path in a sense. Hey, you've got a boat which gets you across an ocean or a sea path. That's designed differently and, versus this sucker which gets you across a what? A space path. We have all these various kinds of vehicles that answer or deal with different kinds of pathways. And when we understand that the religions are asking different questions and dealing with different options, trying to proclaim how you get to the answer, they're really acting like different sets of pathways to different vehicles. In fact, what we're going to do in this series that we're starting here on Easter is we're going to look at several different pathways. We're going to start with Christianity, and we're going to look at that. Then we'll move into Islam, and then we'll take a look at Hinduism, and we're going to look at um, secular humanism. These are kind of core religious experiences that express themselves in different larger religions that you can find across the world. But as we identify these four different pathways, we're going to be looking and examining, hey, what do they say about this question of the afterlife? What do they say when it comes to the direction you should take? And then we're going to ask this question, how do we know which path is right? How do we really know in the end that we're walking on the right path, that we've really picked out the, raw, the right one? Because the path that solves the problems of life and death is the path that we should take. Not just the path that solves the, the, the death problem, not just the path that solves some life issues. No, it needs to solve both the life problems and the death problems in one solution. We need to identify what those problems are and see if the solution that they offer is going to give us a direction that is ultimately correct. And here's the thing. It may be that much of these ideas that we're working with, much of these systems that we're going to be identifying aren't compatible. They don't work together at all. And so we need to ask some basic questions. We're going to ask them every single set. The first question we're going to ask is this. What's the problem? You know, what is the problem these, these different religions are trying to solve, these different pathways are trying to accomplish? What is Hinduism really setting out to do? What is secular humanism really trying to claim? What is Christianity's real problem that it's trying to solve? That'll get us a lot closer to being able to examine it. Then we can ask, did they really solve the, what's the solution to this problem? Did they really solve it? And then how would you know? 
How would you really know if they've solved that problem? That's a good evaluation of the various pathways as it affects the life and the afterlife. And it gives us a better sense of how we can begin to examine it. Because the bottom line is, when we look at questions like this, it helps us frame the problem. Because if you don't frame the problem right, you're not getting anywhere. I'll give you an example. A couple months ago, uh, my wife and I were able to uh, go to Indonesia, and Indonesia is a fascinating, um, a fascinating country. It, it's vast, it's large, it's got lots of islands. We went to one particular island in Papua into a small town called Wamana. Now, and not small town, it's a city of 30,000 people. What's interesting about Wamana is while you're there, you can get on any road you need to, you can drive to a village, you can go to the little, um, you can go restaurants. You can get over to the various places, like, for example, you can go to a restaurant or you can go to the home, not, they don't have a Home Depot, but, you know, like the, the hardware store. You can get to the places that you need. And what's fascinating is you can get in that car and go wherever you need to get to what you want. But you know what? They're, they're, if you want to go to the next city over, you're not going to take a boat because that boat isn't going to get you to the next city. There's some rivers and stuff, but pretty, pretty much you're, you're doomed if you're going to try to get a boat out of Wamana. Second thing is you're definitely not going to take a rocket ship. I mean, there's just, there really aren't any locations there. Sure, jump aboard, buddy. Have fun. Uh, you can't find one. They don't have rocket ships in Wamana. Here's the funny thing, though. If you jump in a car and drive on a street, you'll never find the road that takes you to the next city because there are no roads that lead to the next city in Wamana. You'll drive all you want around and around and around, but you will never leave Wamana and you will never leave the area because the only way in and out of Wamana is by a plane. It is one of the largest cities, in, it's the largest city in the world, only accessible by an aircraft. And so if you don't solve the problem the right way, you're not going to get home. If we had jumped in a car to drive home, we weren't going to get there. We weren't going to get to the next city. You had to leave by plane. And this is a great example of how the religions understand the problem and the solution that they're solving. And it's a perfect example, I believe, of the first one we're going to examine today on Easter, which is Christianity. So let's dive into this question about Christianity, because Christianity is a very narrow religion, like all religions are. They're trying to solve a particular problem. And so when Jesus, the founder, comes out and talks about the problem he's solving, he puts it this way. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what Jesus says is of all the ways, all the pathways, all the directions, all the things, no, not all pathways lead to heaven. Only one pathway leads to heaven. He says, I'm that way. I'm the only truth that makes sense of this world and puts together all the problems of life and death. I solved this, and I am the life that you would live. You can't get to God, who is the Father, except through me. This is a pretty exclusive claim. And I think in our modern day, we would say that's crazy. That's audacious. What is Jesus, how can Jesus say this? What is he trying to proclaim? And that's what we need to begin with, because we're going to ask our three questions. The first question we're going to ask ourselves is, what is the problem that Jesus is claiming? Like that plane that can only get out of Wamana. Jesus says he's the plane. He's the only way out to really get to heaven. So what's the problem he's solving? In Christianity, the problem that we declare is this, that our sin keeps us from God. If you want to, if you want to take all of Christianity down to what's the problem, the problem is that you and I have sin, and our sin keeps us from the relationship that we were intended with God. You see, as you look at, the, at what Christians state, and at the beginning of the Bible, it describes that God has created humanity. And we were made in his image. 
The idea of an image is that there's this connection between who God is and who we are so that we fit together, so that we are his image. We're like his, his, him looking in a mirror in a sense. We reflect him back. It's a lot like a plug, if you know what I mean. If you take a plug and you plug it into the socket, it fits because that socket is the image of the plug or the plug is the image of the socket. And so when you do that, not only does it work, it gets power and, and energy as it's intended to. And God designed us to connect with him in relationship so that we would have life. We would have power, and it would flow through us to be able to know who we are, to have an identity. So we would know our purpose. We'd have a meaning and a value. All this comes from life in God. And yet the problem is our sin, be it our lies, our lusts, our anger, our pride, our arrogance, our gossip, or our self-righteousness, all, when you name it, if it's a sin, it is evil. And God, who is good, isn't going to allow evil in his presence. If you think of God in the biblical terms, in the Christian terms, he's the superhero who's always going to fight evil. He's the super judge who's never going to let evil be gotten away with. And so he's always going to deal with evil, and he's not going to allow it near him. In that case, then, you and I cannot plug back into God. Our sin keeps us from him. And there's this kind of repulsion like in a magnet. It's, we're pushed away. God keeps us out. And so now we're in a situation. we got to get life from somewhere. And so what do we do? We run around plugging into other people. I start using my children as my meaning for my life. Your parents ever done that to you? It's pretty miserable. Man, have you ever gotten to that situation where you're trying to get your value from how you live in your job, only to lose it and wonder what you're worth? You ever tried to run around getting meaning from the people that are surrounding you or, or from your thoughts, only to realize if you died, those thoughts are gone? Have you ever tried to get your identity from your desires? All of our attempts to get identity, to get meaning, to get purpose, to get value fail when we try to plug into other sources. In fact, when I was in Wamana, this plug wouldn't have worked. Because they use a different kind of power. I had to get a, uh, an adapter that it would plug in. And even then I was warned, watch out, the adapters don't always work. You can plug into the adapter and plug into the wall. And that's because of the energy that's coming out of that wall. It will overheat and destroy your computer, your phone, or whatever appliance you're plugging into. Because it's not designed for that. And it will destroy the plug as well. And here's what's interesting. When we try to gain value, and we try to gain purpose... We try to gain the things God intended for us to get from him, from each other, or from the world, or from ourselves, or from our pets, you name it. We not only end up harming ourselves, we end up harming others. We end up using and abusing people. We start wars because we want and we can't have. We fight and we mock and we harm each other, and inside we become depressed, we become broken, because we are not gaining our life from the right place. And the issues globally and personally come from the fact that we are not connected with the very one we've been designed to connect with. And ultimately, we also have one problem. Those are the problems of life. We have a problem in death. Because God, who's the superhero against sin, is going to have to deal with them all. And so when we die in the afterlife, we'll end up facing judgment. And so Christianity states the problem is our sin. It separates us from God, and God has to judge that sin. And so we wind up harming each other, and ultimately running out of life and dying, not just now, but eternally. It's a pretty big problem. 
and explains so many of the issues we feel in our souls and so much of the mess that we create with each other because we're longing to get what we cannot get from each other. We're longing to use people as we should not use them. And so what's the solution Christianity offers? Well, if you've been in the United States long enough, you probably know the answer. Christianity says that Jesus is the one who needs to take your sin to reconnect you to God. What happens now is that Jesus steps in as the one who has never broken his relationship with God, never sinned. In fact, he is God come to earth to dwell here and live amongst us to reconnect us with him. And what's powerful about this solution is that it kind of sets things right. Jesus put it this way. One night when he was talking to a teacher of Israel, he stated it like this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, ever, but have eternal life. And what's here, here's the interesting thing. It starts off with this. God loves the world. Now, you'd think God hates the world. If he's going to crush sin and destroy the evil and all the moral problems that we've done, you think God would, would judge it, and he already has. The, the next, actually, two sentences Jesus will state says that he's already judged it, but he's being patient. He's not ready to bring that judgment today. He's, he's waiting for us to turn around and to actually connect with him again as our source for life and as our existence. You say, but, but we can't. Sin's in the way. That's right. That's the problem. So it's no wonder that he stated the next line, that he gave his only son. Jesus, God incarnate, who had never sinned, came to give his life. This wasn't some kind of child abuse situation. Jesus had come intentionally to bear our sin and the judgment that should be ours. And when he did that, he swallowed the sin up, he took it on himself on the cross, and he gave his life as a sacrifice. This is a very Jewish thought. See, in the Jewish thinking, when you and I sinned, you brought an animal. You prayed your sins on the animal, and the animal died in your place, bearing your sins so you could be forgiven. A judgment had to occur. In this case, there wasn't enough animals. You needed some perfect person, some perfect being. So God himself stepped in, became that perfect person to bear all of our sins because only God could bear all of humanity's sin. And when he did so, he gave himself as a sacrifice to remove our sin so that you and I could begin to have a relationship with God. Notice how it goes on. It says, so that we should not perish. That means there's no judgment in the afterlife. Jesus solved the problem in death, and then we will have eternal life. That's actually not the solution in eternity. That's the solution to life. Eternal life is not living forever. Eternal life is a kind of life. It's the kind of life that God has. God is the eternally living one, and he provides for you and me that opportunity to plug back into him to gain his eternal life through us so that we might have a relationship with him. Once that happens, where do you get your meaning from? God. Where do you get your identity from? God. Where do you get your purpose from? God, where do you gain your value from? God, now that you've gained all that we need for life, we can live in connection with God. We can stop abusing and harming one another. And we actually begin to live out of love and care, knowing I don't need to need people, but I have an opportunity to serve people. And I don't have any fear of death because if God's going to connect with me now, you think he's going to stop connecting, me after I, connecting with me after I die? No way. If I'm a friend of God now, he's going to usher us all the way into his presence, all the way home. And Jesus erased that sin so that we could reconnect with God and have eternal life. 
That's the problem and the solution in Christianity. The issue is our sin. The solution is Jesus, and he's reconnected us to God so we can have that connection today that will extend all the way into eternity. Now, that's fascinating. That's an awesome picture. But how in the world do you even know it's true? I mean, this would be a great fantasy, good mythology, a great, great opportunity to put this on like a movie screen and turn it into like a giant comic book series or something. But let's be honest. We need to ask the question, how do we know that it's true? The answer comes in one statement. It's found by a man named the Apostle Paul. He writes it in the book of Corinthians, and it was agreed upon by all of the church, has been agreed upon ever since. Christianity knows that we have just one thing and just one thing to stand on only. You erase this one thing, all Christianity fails. You prove this one thing, and you've got a lot to deal with. And that is simply this one question. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Did Easter happen or not? If you're going to put all your information and all your questions on something, if you're exploring the pathways to know which one is true, you have to begin with the simple question, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? You only have one or two answers. Yes, he did, or no, he didn't. And if he didn't, we have a lot. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your trust that you're going to get out of this, out of Wamana on a plane is over. You're not making it. There is no out. It's some other problem or solution. You're done. Second, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. See, the resurrection is central because Jesus made the claim that he was God. Now, last time I checked, if God can make life and Jesus dies and can't come back, that's a pretty big problem for somebody who claimed he was God, right? If he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and he can't give life, he's no way, and he's definitely not telling the truth. In fact, in Judaism, if you hung on a tree and was crucified, you were considered cursed by God. If he didn't rise from the dead, then he was at least cursed, at which point we shouldn't follow him. We're stuck in a curse, and therefore there's no answer. Without the resurrection, none of this puts together. None of this comes as a solution. So how would we even know if Jesus rose from the dead? How would we even get there as we examine these things? I'm going to give you four evidences, and this is really kind of interesting. There are about 12 historical evidences that have been laid out, but when it comes to the historical evidences, what's fascinating is that four of them are agreed upon by the vast majority of believing scholars and, get this, skeptical scholars. Now, those people who aren't Christians, they don't really believe in a resurrection, they would at least agree historically that these basic four evidences are historically accurate from the information and all the witnesses and everything that we have from within all the Bible's material, which is just a collection of ancient first century books and all the books outside of those and non-Christian historians. The first piece is basically they're all skeptical and all, uh, all believing Christians, with the exception of like two or three, believe that Jesus actually existed. There is no true scholar. There are skeptics that will say that Jesus doesn't exist, but I'm talking about skeptical scholars, people who know history, have the opportunity to evaluate this information. They all, and the vast majority, with the exception, I think of two, state Jesus was alive and that on the cross he actually beep died. When you look at the evidence, Josephus claimed he was crucified and died. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, claimed he was crucified and died. All the eyewitness 
documents that we have, that we've collected into the Bible, all of them claim Jesus was crucified and died. Paul claimed Jesus was crucified and died. Every time Jesus spoke of, in the ancient world, he was crucified and died. People did not survive crucifixion. You didn't just fall off the cross and they throw you in a grave and you, oh, you got better and you walked away. No, if you were alive, they left you on the cross. Or they sped up your death in some way because crucifixion was created by the Romans as a torturous end of your life and it was going to end your life. They were professionals at this. So the likelihood that Jesus survived is zero in the mind of historical scholars. And so we can start there, just the simple fact that Jesus died on the cross. We know after he had died on the cross that they buried him in a tomb, and that tomb was sealed shut. The evidence indicates that, however, today we know that tomb is empty. Now, this is... is more debated, but still the vast majority of scholars on both sides would have to admit that tomb is empty. And here's why. First of all is the criterion history called embarrassment. If you're going to write something embarrassing about yourself, that embarrassment shows it's more likely true than not. Because otherwise you'd talk about yourself as a hero. You'd show yourself off as all this is great. And yet the apostles claimed that none of them believed that he had been risen from the dead. They thought that his body had been stolen. And so this embarrassing evidence indicates that they didn't initially think that Jesus was alive at all. They thought there was another explanation. Second, if you were in the ancient world, you would not have women give the testimony. No offense to the ladies in the room. In that time period, it was believed amongst the Jewish people that women were bad at telling testimony. They loved to make up stories. Now, as arrogant, as chauvinistic as that is... The, note that the Bible indicates it's the women who went to the tomb. It's the women who came back indicating that the tomb was empty. It's the women who claimed that they saw Jesus in the garden. It's upon women's testimony, which would not have happened in the ancient world, that the tomb was empty. Third, the very enemies proclaimed, according to the, to the, the gospel written by Matthew, one of Jesus' uh, friends and eyewitnesses, he said, hey, the, the Jewish people, the leadership said that we stole the body. Now, that wouldn't matter much because we're like, oh, that's the Bible, right? Except that that same pernicious belief pops up again about 150 years later, still being used in an argument with a man named Trypho, who is Jewish, against a guy named Justin, who is a Christian trying to defend the faith. The argument that Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples has lasted and continued on for many, many centuries. Here's the thing. When you claim Jesus' body has been stolen, you're claiming the tomb is empty. Probably the greatest evidence is simply this. If you're going to start a religion claiming some guy came back to life, you would do it in another town where they can't go to the tomb, pull out his body, and throw it on the ground and say, there he is, shut up. But they started it and stayed in Jerusalem for well over a month and years, proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. If all they could do is go to the tomb, open it up, and get Jesus out, there was no way this would spread into the hundreds of thousands by the end of several years in a city like Jerusalem. The tomb was empty. Another interesting fact that skeptics and um, those who believe agree on is that all the disciples believed that Jesus was dead and then suddenly changed their tune and believed and proclaimed that Jesus was alive. They'd gone from his belief that he died to the belief that he was alive and proclaimed that he was alive, and they believed it. They believed they ate with him. Now, I'm not saying that they actually did. That's not what both sides agreed. Both sides agreed the apostles believed it. 
Paul, writing as an independent person who was not an eyewitness, said, yeah, absolutely they believed. And in fact, he wrote that the earliest creed he had ever received from the apostles stated so. And it's found here in 1 Corinthians 15. This creed dates all the way back to roughly only three to six years after Jesus' crucifixion. This is too early to become mythology. It's too early for it to become something other than refutable witness. And yet this is the creed he receives. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So it's not his. He received this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's a weird word. It's actually the Aramaic term for Peter. That's the name Jesus would have given him in Aramaic. And so we know this was likely written originally in Aramaic because of this crossover, yet this is given to us in Greek. Then to the twelve. And so then it continues. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So we're not talking about a small group here. Then he appeared to James And then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so this is what Paul is writing. And what we see is he is saying, these guys believed it. They told me that they saw him alive. They've said it clearly. All of the apostles' disciples that we have writings from, namely Clement, Polycarp, and others, also all proclaim that these apostles shouted and yelled to the rooftops that they had seen Jesus and that he was alive. In fact, What we know is that Peter would at least be killed for the belief that Jesus was alive, and he would not recant it. James would die for it. In fact, all of them but John would die for the claim that Jesus was alive. Now, that's different than dying for the claim that somebody else told me that Jesus was alive. They would have the firsthand knowledge to know whether they were lying. And people don't usually die torturous deaths holding on to a lie. They usually tell the truth in the midst of torture. We have no knowledge that any of them ever did. Any of that was never written anywhere. And if you were trying to stop a religion, that would be good information, especially for the Jewish people who were trying to stop the claim that Jesus was Messiah. And so skeptical and believing scholars alike agree that the disciples believed that Jesus was alive, the tomb was empty, and that he had truly died. So we have to figure out how these three things go together. And then lastly, you end up with these, um, these people who oppose the faith suddenly becoming Christians. In fact, that's the trick, from fighters to agreeers, shaking hands with it. The first interesting person is the person we're reading right up here. His name originally was Saul of Tarsus. He was given right and ability to fight off the Christian faith and try to shut it down through persecution. But one day, as he claimed, he saw Jesus because Jesus appeared to him. Suddenly, his tune was changed, and he started to preach the gospel and bring people to Christ goes from the terrorist of the church to the greatest church planter we've ever met. I just ask you, what would it take for you to go from somebody who hated something to absolutely switching, to believing it and eventually being beheaded for it? Try the next person. You'll notice this guy, James. Well, James is an interesting character. He was the brother of Jesus. And what we see here is that James actually was was the brother of Jesus in the scriptures, or sorry, the book of John actually indicates that the brothers didn't even believe in him. In Luke and Matthew, it says that they thought he was, their brother was crazy. And so they didn't agree that their brother Jesus was at all God, let alone the Messiah. And yet Josephus, a non-Christian, a Jewish historian, 
along with what we know of from the history uh, from history and from the fact that one of the books of James we have in our Bibles today all proclaim all say that James became the leader of the church and proclaimed that not only was Jesus Messiah but Jesus was God and he would be thrown from the temple heights for proclaiming these things now i don't know how you get there how many of you have a brother anybody in here got brothers throw your hand up real quick what would it take for you to go and start yelling to the world, your brother's God. Anybody got, want to try that one out? <laughs> right. James claimed it was because he saw him alive. And so we have to take these four things, this, these four evidences that lay out here that come together to ask what scenario fits that Jesus truly died, that the tomb was empty, that they believed they had met with him, and that those who opposed him actually flipped. There aren't any out there that work. You can try crazy smoking shrooms, which is what some have tried. We've tried hallucinations. We've tried mass group, um, mass group cult worship and things like that. They've tried alien theories, time travel theories, and everything else. Ultimately, the only one that fits all four of the historical facts is that Jesus Christ indeed rose from the dead. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then he solved both the problem of life, which is sin, and our disconnection with God, which would lead to judgment and death. And if he raised from the dead, he's borne our sins. You have access to connect with God to find your meaning, your purpose, your value, and your identity from him and not from the world to remove yourself from damaging people to be forgiven and to live with him now as he gives you those things and enables you to care for others. Well, how do I do that? What, what do we do to, to receive that? Here's the beauty of it. You don't work hard. You don't earn it. According to John 3.16, which we looked at again, it says that whoever believes in him, you go, believes, that's it. Leap of faith. No, no, no. When you get on an airplane, you have a lot of belief. You believe that thing's going to fly? You believe that pilot's going to get you where he's going to get you to? And watch, as you've seen planes fly, you know aerodynamics work. Now, it may not work this time. What if you're on a 737? Mm. This is a 747. That's why I got this one. But you have to have faith when you get in that seat. You have to trust that those things are going to work. You have to trust that these evidences are strong, that the existence of God are strong, that this is what happens. And what you do is you say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to get on your plane. I'm going to sit down and let you pilot me home because I trust that you've taken my sins. I trust you're connecting with me with God, and I'm going to trust that I can enter into this eternal life. And that's where it begins. It begins with trust, trusting what he's promised. And today, what I want to give you is an opportunity to trust in that. And you can do that right now. It's not something you have to wait for. Look, afterlife is coming. You have no guarantee it's coming later than sooner. So would you bow your heads with me for a minute? Today I want to give you an option, an opportunity to actually receive and begin to trust that Jesus has the solution to life and death, that he can bear your sins and reconnect you to God. I don't know about you. You might be here depressed. You might be here struggling. You might have... You might be here knowing that you have struggled with finding that meaning and value and identity. But Jesus has come to bear that sin away, to reconnect you to God who is able to give you all of those things. But it starts with you making a decision to trust that Jesus has done that for you. Today I want to give you an opportunity, if that's you and you would like to begin that journey, 
right where you're at, it's as simple as just praying and asking God to take that sin and forgive you. Give you a chance right now, just by you putting your hand up, I want to pray a prayer with you. You're saying, that's me. You know, I, I, I see that. I need to begin this journey. I need to start trusting so I can have that connection with God. And just pray this prayer with me. You just say, Father, I just thank you. You've given us enough evidence to trust. It may not be perfect, but I trust that Jesus bore my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to reconnect with me. And to give me that meaning, that value, that purpose, that identity, that I can walk with you all the way through into eternity. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Olive Branch, if some of you may have made that prayer today, and I want to give you an opportunity to let us know. In fact, what we're going to do today is something different. It's Easter time, and in order to uh, kind of find out where we're at, we want to do kind of a spiritual survey today. And so what I'm asking you to do is you've got these green cards that are in front of you and around, and it's called a next step card. And what we're asking you to do is everybody here today, whether you come to the church or not, we would like to hear from you. And what we're doing is just asking you to give us your name and just a short way to contact you and, and uh, just, just so that we can make sure that you're good. And this green card enables you to, to let us know one of four things. You can mark your name, the, the contact info, and just mark A, if you're already a believer. This helps us out, and we want to be able to know, hey, we want to praise God for you, and, and we know you're a brother or a sister. Maybe it's B. Maybe you prayed that prayer just now, and you're ready to begin that journey with Jesus. Write that B in there and allow us to walk with you. We want to get you a Bible information maybe and help you answer some questions you might have. Beginning is, is important. It's, it's difficult at times. We want to be able to help you out. That C, you can mark that. Maybe you're considering it. You haven't given your life, but you think those, those facts are interesting. You find the conversation fascinating. You'd like to learn more. Maybe you don't even know what questions you should be asking. That's okay. By marking C, we'd like to connect with you and, and help you out by in, introducing you to something we call starting point. Starting point is an opportunity for you to ask some questions or hear some people ask questions and hear some responses as you begin to explore Jesus Christ and Christianity. And so by marking that C, you're saying, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I would like to explore more. You're not ready to cross that line yet, but you're thinking. Or maybe it's D. You're like, I'm not even going to fill out a card if it's D. No, we would love for you to fill out the card, even if you're saying, I, I don't really want Jesus, I'm okay. It just helps us know where we're all at. And we want to appreciate that. We're not going to send you anything. We just want to hear from you. We want to thank you that you're willing to participate here at Easter and being a part of the church. So just let us know. Our host team is going to come forward with those buckets, and they're going to collect those as they pass them by. And we just are so thankful that you'd even participate with us in this way. So grab that card and fill it out. And um, I'll see you at the end of the service. God bless you guys.